All right, this morning I'm reading from Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Thanks, Jana. All right, all right. Well, good morning, everybody. Hope you're having a good day in general. Uh, the, I just wanted to hit one thing that Ashley mentioned uh, the business meeting in a couple weeks is uh, just an opportunity for us to be together, uh, for those who are members to come and hear, and for those who aren't members to come and hear. Uh, like Ashley said, we don't have uh, we don't have any big business to cover this year, but it is an opportunity for um, you to see maybe a little bit of the inner workings of our church, which is always helpful. And uh, it's a good year. It's been a good year, so it's going to be a good meeting. But uh, all are invited. All right, all right, great. So. Uh, I've realized that I don't often do this, but my name is Nick, and I'm the pastor here, right? Just in case anybody was curious as to who I am. Anyways, today we're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount that we're calling As It Is, As It Is, which is a kind of funny title for a sermon series, I think, because it makes me think of those people who, who like to tell it like it is, right? Does anybody know these people? They say of themselves, I just tell it like it is. I just call a spade a spade. I just, I'm just a straight shooter. All of those people, Jana, don't point at your husband because it's going to get weird. It might be bad here in a second. Uh, the, all of those people, I, I feel like saying, I just tell it like it is, is a kind of veiled excuse to, of saying, I'm just a little bit of a jerk. <laughs> excuse my language. Not you, Brian. You're the kindest, most whatever. Yeah, not you. But... Uh, uh, I'm just a little bit of a jerk. I'm sorry for the offensive language, by the way, this morning, if any of you are offended by that word. Uh, so often, we, there's this problem with that, though, isn't there? Because we just tell it like it is, right? But w- those of us who like to just shoot straight, who just like to keep it real, don't always access reality clearly, right? We're all, we are only speaking from our own perspective, Right? And we are shut off from all other people's perspective. So we might be telling it how we see it, but that might not actually be how it is, is it? It might not. And uh, we kind of need to be aware of this because when we look to uh, when we look to the Sermon on the Mount and when we look to Jesus. This sermon is Jesus' definitive word on what the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God and his words, look like when lived out on earth. And Jesus uses the phrase, uh, as it is, in a portion of this sermon uh, called the Lord's Prayer that we'll get to in a few weeks. But in that portion of the sermon, Jesus is talking about what it looks like to communicate with God now that Jesus is on the scene. This is what he's talking about. And like I said, we'll get into the Lord's Prayer in a couple of weeks, but the basic idea is that this little phrase is, uh, the basic idea behind this little phrase, as it is, is that Jesus' disciples are not supposed to see things from their own perspective. 
They're not called, actually, to see it, to call it like they see it. But through prayer and through devotion and through concrete spiritual practices, are supposed to learn to submit to see things as Jesus sees them, or as He claims that things actually are, and to partner with God to see up there come down here, to partner with God to see things in heaven come down to earth in a way, to see God's way of life take up root in our lives and communities. This is what we're called to do. But unlike the person that is just telling it like it is, or just trying to call a spade a spade, Jesus does not lead into the Sermon on the Mount in, with blunt statements about the way things ought to be. And this is, important to, this is important to understand about this sermon. He does not lead with a condemning word. Jesus does not begin the Sermon on the Mount with a condemning word. Rather, he leads with a hopeful and grace-filled pronouncement of good news, of good news about blessing and goodness and freedom and comfort and love. This is what Jesus leads with in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is most certainly going to tell us how it is, and he, he gets into that pretty quickly, but he is going to do it in a way that brings life and invites our participation. But unfortunately, sometimes we don't read the Sermon on the Mount this way. We don't read it this way. We think he is giving us, uh, like we said last week, a be like this list, a list of things we need to do or be. Like, like the Sermon on the Mount is just a kind of new Ten Commandments that we're just supposed to perform in order to receive God's favor. Jesus does not first give people the bad news about all the ways that they don't measure up and get in line. Jesus leads with a hopeful message, with good news. And today we're looking at another passage that we should read as being full of hope and full of grace. Full of hope and full of grace. Notice that Jesus begins saying to his disciples, he begins this way in our passage for today, you are the salt of the earth, you are the hope of the world. He does not say, if you do the things that I tell you, you are the salt of the earth. Or if I do the things I, you tell, I tell you to do, you are the hope of the world. The reason for this, the reason for this is that uh, Jesus is always, always, always going to begin with our hearts. Jesus is always going to begin with our hearts. And in the kingdom of God, being comes before doing. In the kingdom of God, being comes before doing. Who we are comes before what we do. You know, we're learning from psychology that this is more and more true, that people tend to live into who they see themselves to be or who they understand themselves to be or who other people say to them that they are. This is why a parent's love and support is important in the development of a child, right? We know this instinctively. That if your child walks into first grade believing that they are good at math, they are more likely to succeed in math class, regardless of their intelligence level, right? Because who they see themselves to be, in large part, determines what, what they are, what they become, what they do. And if a teenager who comes from a broken situation 
right, and has low self-esteem and is horribly dysfunctional, can, can come into a situation where they receive healing and hope into a community that affirms them, that loves them, that, to, that pulls out and points out those things, those gifts and skills that they do have that are inherent in them. They can receive healing and hope because they will become what inherently they believe they are, right? We know this instinctively, right? That you will become, I will become the thing that I think I am, And what we need to realize is that in Christ, we are, if you're in this place and you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, salt and light. And that identity, that understanding of your being transforms from the inside out your actions. Does this make sense? So actions do naturally follow from this, but they are not the starting place and they are not where Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with being, with identity. You know, the truth of the matter is, is that uh, we have to get the identity straight before we get into the doing. Otherwise, the doing just becomes kind of meritorious activity that we carry out in order to attain, right? Now, is effort good? Yes, effort is good. Is, is it important to do things in order to uh, shape ourselves and, and mold ourselves? Yes, but you would never go to the gym to work out if you didn't have a vision for yourself as a fit person. Does this make sense? If you, you would never go to the gym if you, th- if you truly believed it doesn't matter how many weights I lift or how many ellipticals I do, which I've, I've been on elliptical three times and I'm too, disorgan- too un- uncoordinated to actually do it. Um, that's only my right side works. Uh, you wouldn't go to the gym and do that if you truly believed that you were not capable of getting in shape, right? You wouldn't, which is not an encouragement. Uh, to just sit around. Um, We wouldn't do that. But if you truly, truly believe that you are not what Jesus says you are, you will not do the things he says. Does this make sense? And so Jesus begins with identity, with uh, being, with what you are. He leads with blessing, and he leads with grace, and he leads by saying, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And then he gets into all the rest of it. So today, we're going to look specifically at this little section on the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus drops in right before he gets into maybe a little bit more meaty section of the text. But uh, what we need to understand and what I think we we, uh, need to see is that this imagery of salt and light is fairly common, isn't it? It's used, uh, I think, often. It was Ronald Reagan, I think, that popularized the idea that America is a city on a hill, a light, right? This is where he got that. Slightly um, misinterpreted that scripture, but that's okay. But what actually was Jesus saying when he said to his disciples and to the crowds, you are salt and you are light? What was Jesus saying there? Well, for starters, what we need to understand, we need to look at that first word that he says, you, you. In this passage, when we read it, we often think of it as a singular you, don't we? Like me, right? But that would be misreading it because in Greek, he's talking to a plurality of people. And so the you here is actually plural. It would be more appropriate to say you and then a 
a dash and then all. Or if you're from a part of the country that I try not to spend time in, y'all. Sorry, that didn't mean to disparage Southerners. It's just that I like where I'm from. Anyways, the, the basic idea is that you by yourself are not salt or light. You as a singular, singular solitary individual are not those things. In America, we misunderstand this, I think. In church, I don't know about you, but I grew up in church, and I grew up singing, this little light of mine, right? I'm going to let it shine. We've turned Jesus, Jesus's plural you into the first person singular I. Does this make sense? Uh, and what we think is the light, my light that I'm responsible for is my ability to be holy, right? So it's my, the individual stuff that I do in order to be holy. So the stuff I don't do, very often it's the things I avoid. Um, and the individual stuff that I do, and I fell prey to this growing up. I used to think that the, the way I let my light shine, the primary way that I let my light shine in the world was doing two things. I was convinced of it in high school. The first was that I had to carry my Bible everywhere I went, and whenever I got to class, my Bible was on top of my, all my history books or my science books or whatever, right? That was the first way, because they know I carried a Bible. And the second thing that I felt I needed to do was that I felt like I needed to kneel down in front of my locker every day before class and pray on my knees with my open locker. Now, that in and of itself is not a bad thing. In many cases, it's a good thing. But I had individualized my faith to such an extent that I thought the only way in which I represent Jesus is by doing those things. Does this make sense? That was what I had kind of condensed it down to, right? And really, when you condense it down to just those external things that you do or don't do, what it just becomes is self-righteousness very often. Very often, that's what it becomes. So I'm not saying that those things are bad, but we, but we have been led to believe that uh, the way that I communicate to the world who God is, the way I let my light shine, is just I do a bunch of stuff by myself, right? But Jesus says that it's you all, it's us together that are both salt and light. You, said, you see, you need other people in your life in order to do this effectively. If our relationship with God is private, if it's wholly personal, if it does not involve other disciples, other people, then it will not get the job done. It will not get the job done. This is why followers of Jesus, for the record, attend church, right? But more importantly than just attending church, this is why followers of Jesus are involved in each other's lives. Why we are in, like Ashley said earlier, community. This is why we do this. So the first thing that Jesus says to his followers is, you are salt. In verse 13, this is what he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now what exactly he means by this has been the subject of a lot of study and a lot of sermons. You can go online after you leave here if you're dissatisfied with the quality of this message and find literally 30,000 other pastors who have preached this sermon, and you can, you know, compare and contrast. Uh, and every pastor who preaches this message, 
every pastor who ever runs across this passage of Scripture, uh, wants to kind of find a novel or unique take on what Jesus is saying here. But what often happens, and what is often the case, is that it's the obvious rather than the unexpected meaning of the text that turns out to be the correct one, right? In Jesus' day, uh, salt was used in a lot of different ways. Uh, it was vitally important to the way that the world functioned. It was, it was a vital component to everyday life in Jesus' world. Nations went to war over salt, Right? because they needed it. Salt in the ancient world was kind of like petroleum in our day. It's kind of like oil. Um, the, the nations that had it had a lot of money and power, and there was, it was very important. It was very big business. And the reason that this was the case is because salt preserved foods, and they did not have either electricity or refrigerators, right, like we have. And everyone, as we know, loves a good salt-cured ham. That's the second thing. Ashley and I were in Nashville um, probably a month and a half ago now, and uh, we went to this restaurant called Husk, and they brought this starter plate of um, just salt-cured country ham and a variety of house-made pickled stuff, and it was the greatest thing I've ever put in my mouth. And I just, uh, Ashley was like, had to grab me a few times because I just started falling off my seat. Um, if you give me salty ham and pick an assortment of pickled items, I will die a happy man. Anyways, <laughs> that's not a plug. It's just the truth. Uh, anyway, the point is that salt preserves food, right? Because if you put salt on something, particularly like meat, it removes the water from that uh, piece of meat and thus stops it from decaying, right? It prevents it from mold, well, it molds, but it prevents it from decaying, right? And it keeps it edible for a long time. So salt was a vital part of life, and it was a natural preservative, right? It uh, prevented decay. But in the Old Testament, salt is spoken of in a number of different ways beyond just that. Uh, it represents purity in the Old Testament. It, salt uh, represents covenant loyalty. It's spoken of in an analogy of, what, of being loyal to the covenant that Israel made with God. And it was even added to sacrifices. If you read the book of Leviticus, you'll see that salt was occasionally added to sacrifices, which leads us, all of this information kind of when cobbled together, leads us to believe that the primary meaning of what Jesus was saying here was that salt uh, represents distinctiveness, distinctiveness or difference. I don't really like the word different, actually, because in our culture, different has kind of a negative connotation. You've all been in one of those conversations when you said, have, you, have any of you guys talked to Jeffrey? He's a little different, right? That doesn't necessarily mean a positive thing, does it? But it means distinct or important or useful. This is, we have it up on the screen, I think. So salt, it represents something that is distinct, important, or useful, we know this specifically because Jesus goes on in this passage uh, when he's talking about salt and says that if salt loses its distinctiveness, if it loses its taste, it becomes no longer useful, right? So inherently, it must be useful for something. It can't be, it, it, it can no longer, if it use, loses its distinctiveness, be used to preserve or flavor food, right? Or any number of other things that it was used for in the ancient world. It is now 
if it loses its distinctiveness, if it loses its quality as salt, it is now only good to be trampled upon, right? It's just crushed up sediment. It's only good to be trod underfoot. The idea here is that salt can only lose its taste when it becomes tainted by something else, when it becomes polluted in some specific way. Because as you know, salt is a stable chemical. It can't actually lose its saltiness, but it can be polluted. It can be, uh, it can be uh, watered down, if you will in such a way as that it no longer holds its value. And Jesus says this uh, when he is saying, essentially, my followers are those who are distinct and, and different, who are useful in the world, who are vital to the world. But if too much foolishness has been added in, if my followers lose what makes them distinct, if they lose their distinct, distinctness, and they, they become no longer useful, and they aren't really good for that much anymore. This is functionally what Jesus is saying when he's talking about salt. So, that is what Jesus is saying when he compares his followers to salt. You're welcome. The next image is a bit more popular, and it really uh, is an image that Jesus dedicates the majority of his time in this little section to, and that is to the image of light of light. Uh, Beginning in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We instinctively understand this image, don't we, of light. This one is familiar to us. We know that light illuminates, it brightens things up. We know that light draws people towards itself. If you are in a dark room trying to get your son or daughter's glass of water out before they spill it all over themselves, as they inherently do at like two in the morning, uh, you will find the one like kind of beam of light and you will just, you will like a tractor beam, go straight to it in order to, to illuminate, to find the light, right? To illuminate the rest of your space. Light has this a power, right? This, this ability to uh, be light wherever it is. You can't, you can't overcome light with darkness, right? Light always overpowers. It always pushes out the darkness. The more light you have, the more light things are, Right? The more light you have, the more clearly you can see. We understand this analogy, I think, inherently. But I want you to notice something at this point, and that is that while salt can mean distinctness or difference, light would stop us from thinking or believing that this distinctness is separateness, is separateness. So we need to unpack this a little bit. So very often when we think of we need to be uh, Christ followers need to be different, right? Or they need to be distinct. What, we, what often comes to our mind, what naturally happens is there, there becomes a kind of gap that we think needs to exist. There be, we need to be separate from other people so as not to be polluted, right? This is kind of a natural religious impulse, isn't it? All religions have this impulse. I don't know necessarily where this impulse comes from, but it's it, maybe it's the fault of the Puritans. I don't know. They came here to try to get away from everything, right, that would pollute their faith or their religion. 
And too often in America, I think we make this mistake that we want to build ourselves up as Christians and we want to create a kind of holy huddle, right? We want to create kind of a separateness to us and to everybody else. And this inherently happens sometimes. This inherently happens when, you're, uh, when you only associate with people who think the same way you do, right? This happens in a lot of different realms as well. But very often there's this, this kind of, as we follow Jesus for a period of time, there becomes this separateness, right? And sometimes, sometimes a little distance is good in some areas. If, if you're an alcoholic, you should put a little distance between you and that thing that caused you uh, problems, right? But there's some wisdom in that. But in general, generally speaking, light would tell us, light goes into the world, right? This is, what, this is the image that we have of light. It is not an image of separateness. And so that, the idea here is that one can maintain one's distinctiveness, one's usefulness, one's vitality out into the world, right? And still be light and yet not create this kind of false separateness, this separateness that just makes me feel better about my holiness and doesn't actually serve the purpose that Jesus says we're supposed to serve in the world, which is to be vital, to be useful, to be salt. Does this make sense? I think it's an important one. And what's always funny to me about this is that the religious impulse that we all have, and I think that's what it is, a purely religious impulse to separate ourselves, is so distinctly different from what Jesus did in and of himself The Bible says that Jesus familiarized himself, that he was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners, that he was called a drunkard because he was always at their parties, right? Jesus' impulse was not a separate impulse, right? Jesus put his hands physically on people that society at that time told him he cannot, should not put his hands on, right? Jesus got in as close of proximity as possible to those things which needed him. That's what he did. And so it's always funny to me that we have this religious impulse that says create distance, right? And like I said, in some, in some cases, that's wisdom. But in most cases, not most cases, but in a lot of cases, I don't think it's right. I don't think it's right. We are supposed to associate ourselves with our community, with our world, with people who occupy it, regardless of how broken they are, right? We are not, the church is not supposed to be the no fun club, which it often gets a, uh, a, a little bit of a bad rap for, right? We are to engage in culture, in the regular life of our community, and we should be distinctly useful within that context. We should be of good use. We should be helpful. We should be uh, an addition and not a subtraction, right? We are not against our cities and our communities, or, or our places of employment. We are not against those things. We are not uh, to be uh, against our university, right? We are not to be against our, uh, our political establishments. We are supposed to be for people and for things and for Christ in the midst of culture. No matter how ill-suited I may feel in, uh, and I'm not saying me because I feel wonderfully suited to my job, but I know that some of us don't make, feel a little ill-suited to our jobs. That doesn't, right, uh, de- decrease our responsibility to be light in, the, in that workplace, to be vital and to be attractive, right? I really worry about Christians who have developed this kind of us versus them mentality, whether that's in their place of employment or whether that's in their city or wherever that is. And we're always uh, calling everything and everyone dark and sinful, 
Have you ever met anybody like this? Like every, everything they run into is dark and sinful. And while uh, it is the responsibility of uh, Christians to be light, right, to illuminate, uh, to, to actually name things, it does, not, it does not involve fear, and it does not involve this kind of uh, us-versus-them mentality. A church that understands this should see everything and everyone in their community as a blessing, as a blessing. They should identify areas of difference, right? We should have, we've talked about this before, that we should identify areas of difference. We can, res- we can respectfully disagree about things, about issues, about topics, right? This is normal. This is, you can't have a dialogue with anybody if you don't have areas of disagreement and have a respectful conversation about this. But we should want to make people's lives better, right? Which may include encouraging people to stop doing things that hurt them. Yes, I will admit that. But we should be enthusiastically for the places that we live, right? And the places that we frequent. We should be for the families and institutions of our community. We should be for those things. Uh, We should love, in essence, where we live. We should love it. Now, I feel particularly uh, empowered to speak about this because I come from Sioux City. And if any of you, I, we had Jana read today because she knows all about Sioux City. Um, at Sioux City is the type of place that I used to say, if you don't grow up there, it's a hard place to love. It's on the river, which has its own challenges. Uh, there used to be a lot of packing plants there, and there's a couple fertilizer plants that are right on the interstate. And so when you drive through Sioux City, the most, the most distinct thing about it might be the thing you smell, right? It's not always the best smelling place in the world. Now, this is true, and it's not me using foul language from the stage. It's not. Um, but the initials of Sioux City's airport, the, the call sign, are S-U-X. So when you fly into Sioux City, your landing in sucks, right? This is, like I said, excuse my language. Um, Sioux City has some, Sioux City has some challenges, but growing up in Sioux City, it became the type of place that I loved, that I loved, and that I, as a, as a, as a member of that city, it was a place that I wanted to better, right? I remember growing up in church, we would have uh, pastors that would come and work at our church, and some of them didn't last very long, and part of the reason I think they didn't last very long was because they were always complaining about Sioux City. It, uh, this place smells. It, never, it doesn't have good stuff to do. It's not enough, it's not enough fun. It, you know, they, were, they always had these complaints. And then they would find, surprise, surprise, a couple years later, they would find their way to another place, right? Uh, it always surprised me. Ashley's father was our pastor growing up. Ashley's dad thought Sioux City was heaven on earth. He really did. He would just, sometimes he would just, he still says to me, Sioux City was my little slice of heaven. I was just going, okay, that's great, right? But he embodied this reality, and he was fairly successful because of it. This, this idea that in order to care for a place, you do have to love it. In order to care for a place, in order to want to make a place better, you have to care enough about it, right? You have to love it. And if you want to change anything, you have to love a place enough to want to change it, right? If you don't actually love something, you don't want to change the things that aren't quite right. You don't want to be an active participant in the bettering of a place if you don't care about it, right? You just want to get out. 
But you need to love where you live. You need to love where you're at. You need to have affection for the place that God has put you. Uh, being a, uh, a, a salt and light in the world involves caring for the places that we live. And in truth, and in truth, if we do that, if we love the places we live and we bring the light of Christ into those places, then it will brighten things up inherently. It will. And then Jesus moves on to one more thing in this passage. And this is what he says uh, in verse 16. In the very same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds, good deeds, and glorify your Father in heaven. So how do we actually tangibly show the light or be the light or do all of those things? We do it. It involves being the light. The light involves tangible good deeds, right? Tangible good deeds. They will see your good deeds. Okay, well, here's a question. What is a good deed? First, that's the first question I have. I don't know about you, but I don't go around doing good deeds. It sounds like something Lancelot did, right? Uh, that's my first question. And the second question uh, is, what are these good deeds? What are these good actions? What are these good things, right? Well, in truth, these good deeds, these good actions are character traits like holiness and chastity and generosity and compassion for the poor and the sharing of God's good news. This is what these good deeds are. And it is at this point, if you're like me, that you probably go, okay, Nick, I thought this being salt and light thing was difficult before, but now I think it's impossible, right? Because I don't, I don't have a whole lot of free good deed time. Like, I, I schedule my day pretty closely, and the most I can give to good deeds is like 15 or 20 minutes, right? Uh I would like to be different. I would like to do good deeds, wouldn't we? Most of us would. But we can't. We don't, at least we don't feel like we can. And if we're being honest, it's because we feel probably somewhere deep inside that I can't even change myself, right? Let alone uh, change other people let alone go out into the world and do good deeds. I would like to be different from the world. I would like to be salt and light. But in the side, I think most of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, most of us feel the same as everybody else. I think, right? And the truth is, we don't know how to make ourselves different, do we? We don't know how, by sheer force of will, to make ourselves different than other people. We don't know how to make ourselves distinct and useful. This is, this is, most of us are just trying to get by, right? Most of us are just trying to make it. Most of us are just trying to make it to the next thing, right? Some of us are just working for the weekends. We're just, we're just trying to make it. And I have this sneaking suspicion that when we talk about salt and light, it can be interesting, right, to understand things about the past and what Jesus meant and how salt was used in the first century and yada, yada, yada. But when the, when rub, when the rubber meets the road, it's a difficult thing to do and be. 
And we don't think we can be that. At least on our bad days, right? Well, if you feel that way, I think this morning you're in luck, actually. Because there's good news. And that good news is that you can't make yourself any different. You can't, by sheer force of will, make yourself into salt and light. It's impossible. You and I can't do it. We can't will ourselves towards good deeds, even. It's not possible. None of us, on our own, can be salt and light in the world. None of us can do that. If we could... If, and if we really thought we could, that would be pretty arrogant, wouldn't it? I'm salt and light. I'll do whatever I want. I, that's the song I sing to myself. Um, it didn't even make sense. Uh, but it would be arrogant of us, wouldn't it? And it's at this point that I think we find our way back around to the beginning of the message. We, we find our way back around to what Jesus said at the beginning. Jesus calls his disciples in this passage salt and light, not because he wants them to muster up the ability to be that all on their own. Jesus calls his disciples salt and light because he is salt and light. Jesus describes himself in the book of John as the light of the world, right? And it is only true about us because it's true about him. The gospel is that God has adopted you and me. He has made us his sons and his daughters. And now, because of that, we are able to live by his spirit as salt and as light. As salt and as light. Because you see, in the gospel, being always comes before doing right? And if you're in this place today, uh, maybe you're just a little despondent at the prospect of being salt and light. Maybe that just feels like too much work, doesn't it? It feels like it's going to require a little too much effort from me. Maybe I just don't want to do that. Maybe I just want to be who I am and have to live with the ramifications of that, right? Being salt and light if it, is a, if it is grace, and if Jesus calls us salt and light because of who he is, then the invitation to be salt and light is an invitation to grace. It's an invitation to surrender. It's an invitation to dependence on the person of Jesus, isn't it? And so this morning, this is what I want to do. Uh, very, if you're like me, very often you feel like you don't measure up. Like you can't do all of the things that you need to do in a day in order to be what God would have you to be. That you can't, by sheer force of will, really accomplish anything of value. And like I said earlier, there's good news. You don't have to. Followers of Jesus, Christians are people who believe wholeheartedly that we do not rest on our own merits, that we do not simply pull up our bootstraps and get the good deeds done, that we rest, that we reside within the grace of God, and that because of who we are in Christ, the power 
of the Spirit of God is available to us to help us, to aid us, to, to boister us, to buoy us, to make our lives possible, to make us, in His grace, salt and light. So would you stand with me this morning? And here's what I want to do. We're just going to sing a song. We're just going to sing a song together. And my prayer for you this morning is that you would simply open yourself up to the possibility that God wants to make you salt and light. That he wants you to open up your heart maybe a little bit more to him. That you can just say, God, I don't, I don't measure up. I don't feel this really. I don't feel that distinct. I don't feel that important. I don't feel that useful. But I believe in you. And I want you to help me become that. That's, that's the sweet spot, I think. That's the pocket for any Christian. To, to open ourselves up afresh and anew to dependence on the person of Jesus. To have him say to us again who we are. That we are his. And that because of that, everything can be different. Let's sing.
Father, uh, we open ourselves to you. We do not claim to live off our own steam, God, that we can muster up the ability to, go, to do good deeds or to be light or to be salt or to be anything of value, really, in this world. Rather, uh, we acknowledge that, Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And any saltiness we possess, as funny as that sounds, any light that we may spread over this earth is because of our connection to you, because we're connected to the source. And so now, God, as we go, help us to be your people. Help us to remain connected to the source. Help us to see ourselves as loved by you. And may that make all the difference. Go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.